Good morning, everybody. My name's Dave Latham. I'm the RUF campus minister at uh, Christopher Newport University, and it's good to be back here with you again. I think I was over here in July, over the summer, and it's always a pleasure to get asked to come back. Um, one, I just count you all friends, and two, it's like, oh, they like me. They want me to come back and preach again. That's great. So I'm glad I haven't left a bad taste in your mouth, and uh, <laughs> hopefully you will find it palpable. Um, this morning, we'll be looking in, in the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. We're going to be at 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to look at the first uh, 17 verses of that particular chapter. And what we're going to be talking about uh, really for the next two weeks is kind of the kingship, the kingship of God. Kind of what does this look like? What does it mean for us to live in a kingdom? What about the promises of this king to come, which is what we're going to look at this morning, kind of the promised king. But yet, even next week, what we're going to look at is we're going to go to the book of Revelation. And, okay, what does it mean for, this, for us to live in a kingdom that's ruled by a good king? And why should that give us hope? And why should that give us comfort? And, or why should we care that there's a king at all? And that's what we're going to be looking at probably these next two weeks, which is great. And I'm really looking forward to it. Um, the, the passage that we're going to look at this morning is the Davidic Covenant. God moving on uh, to, this, to the scene of history, as he always does, and moving towards his servant David, and said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And specifically, this covenant is going to involve an eternal throne. Kind of the, you're the king, but a better king is coming. A bigger, better king is on the way. And this whole passage really points to the promised king to come, which is what we're going to talk about next week, the returning king. So let's give attention to the reading of God's Word from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1-17. through 17. And just a quick reminder, these are not just some good moral stories. These are not some cute little things that we can go and crochet you know, onto our cross stitch and hang up on our wall. I mean, this is the very Word of the Lord. And we'd be very wise if we pay attention to it. Let's read together. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly." From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, but with the stripes of of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord does indeed stand forever. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we do pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, that you would remove distractions from us. We're busy people. And it's hard not to come here on your day and and have distracted minds and have distracted hearts and be burdened by the cares of the world and and family life and strained relationships, Lord. We pray that you would meet us here, that you would show us grace and mercy, that you would help us to find hope in the coming king, just like David is being given this wonderful message of the, the sovereign king to come. Lord, may our hearts be comforted knowing that we live and move and have our being in Jesus Christ, who is the true King, who's come to make it all right. Lord, be with us. Open our hearts. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my wife and I used to live in Hendersonville, North Carolina, actually a little small town attached to Hendersonville called Tuxedo, but probably none of you have heard of it. And that's okay. It had no stoplights and two gas stations. It was kind of a big deal. Um, well, we lived in Tuxedo, and we lived at this, at this summer camp called Camp Greystone. We lived there for about four years. That's actually where we met, where we got married, where we lived. It was kind of the, the nucleus of our little family there for a while. And one of the great privileges that we had every year during the off-season, once the normal kind of summer schedule was over, the, the summer uh, campers had gone home, we, right before it got too cold where we had to drain all the water out of the pipes and kick everybody out, we had these off-season weekends, and one of the ones that we had was called Camp Courage. And basically what we would do is there were uh, patients and families from the Greenville Hospital System, from Greenville, South Carolina. I'm from South Carolina, if you hadn't picked up from the accent already. Um, and we would bring these families up, basically, for a weekend and love them. And the reason we did this is a lot of these, uh, the campers that would come up were, they had cancer. Uh, sickle cell anemia, leukemia, stuff like this. And basically what we did was we said, why don't you take a weekend and why don't you come up to the mountains? We're going to throw out, we're going to roll out the red carpet for you. No holds barred. You do whatever you want. Let's forget the needles. Let's forget the chemicals. Let's forget the hospital, the treatment, even if just for a short while. And why don't you come up and let us just love you and y'all have a good time together. It was a, it was a highlight of our year. And the goal for that whole weekend was to provide a fun afternoon for the patients and families. There was this one time during the course of the weekend when the families would actually come up and join the campers, and we threw this big party. And as I was looking around, I noticed a problem that we had the DJ lined up, we had the food lined up, we had so many other things lined up, but where were the, where were like the camp games? You know, the normal like kind of hokey stuff you do at camp that kind of makes it fun? I mean, where was all of that stuff? Recognizing an obvious need, I dutifully went about setting up all of these games for the families. I mean, I had it all. I had the water balloon toss. I had the tug of war. I had the football throw. 
you know, where you hang a bunch of tires from trees and you throw the ball through it and you, you know, win some fantastic prize. I mean, I had all of that stuff. And, and as I looked back, I, I was kind of surveying the work of my hands and I really felt like I had saved the day until I heard the distinct rumbling of a diesel engine, kind of this low, and I, I heard it and I looked in the general direction where I thought it was coming and then I saw the, the huge truck full of inflatable games you know, the bounce house and the 30-foot slide, and I mean, the dunk tank. I mean, I saw, I heard, I saw that thing kind of top the hill, and my, my heart sank. I mean, what I had done was failed to ask what the plans were, and I had just kind of blindly set out thinking that I was going to accomplish uh, what I thought was best. I thought I had the perfect solution, but the thing that I learned immediately with the rumble of a diesel engine is that something greater was already planned. And as we look at our text this morning, I want us to understand quickly the context of what's going on here. David had been anointed king of Judah to the south in chapter 2, and then later made king of Israel to the north in chapter 5. He defeated the Philistines to the west and brought the Ark of the Covenant into the new capital city of Jerusalem in chapter 6. But now in chapter 7, David attempts to solve what he feels like is a real problem. He's comfortable in his own palace while the very presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, is just sitting in a tent. And he wants to build a permanent house for God. And when we look at what's going on in the text here, we think, well, that seems like a noble goal. But as we'll see as we move through the text, something greater was already planned. Our focus this morning will not be so much on the stipulations of the covenant in and of itself, but really on the gracious and humility of the covenant God. Not so much on the promise, but on the promise maker, if that makes any sense. As we'll look at this text, we'll see that God responds to the efforts of David in two really amazing ways. And if you're taking notes, these will be our two main points. We'll see that God responds with patience, verses 1 through 7, roughly. And then we'll see that God responds with promise, verses 8 through 17. Those are our two points. God responds with patience. God responds with promise. Well, let's look at that first point. In verses 1 and 2, David tells Nathan that he wants to build God a house. And there's an, there's an interesting Hebrew word that kind of gets thrown around a lot in this passage, and that word is bayat. And basically what that word means is like a dwelling or a house. It's, a key, it's really a key word to this uh, passage. And what we see is David is safe in a house in his own bayat and feels that it's only proper to make God safe in a bayat like his. Well, I've got mine and God needs one. It's not enough that David had the amazing Ark of the Covenant in the city in and of itself, as if, as if that wasn't amazing in its own right. Now David presumes that God needs a house built for him. Let's look at these verses. It says, Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Then in verse 3, Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. What we see is Nathan the prophet blessing David's actions, really rather than seeking God for wisdom in that sense. The plan seemed logical and right on, the, on, on, on its own. And Nathan says, well, go for it. And Dale Ralph Davis, who wrote a commentary on this, on this book, he said, God's servants often mean well but lack the wisdom of God. 
And I want us to think through as we, as we kind of respond to that quote by Dale Ralph Davis is how often do we press forward with our own agendas really rather than waiting on God's direction? How often do we simply find a Nathan to agree with us rather than really asking what God wants us to do? I mean, look, two verses into the narrative, both the king and the prophet have insulted the sovereignty of God. David thinks God needs his protection. And Nathan assumes that he can just pronounce a blessing without divine discernment. And what we see in verse 4 is that God, even in the midst of this, moves on to the scene and really gives Nathan a true word. Go to David and say, thus says the Lord. Here's the true word. God could have responded with great anger to the sins of the king and the prophet, but instead he responds with unbelievable patience. Unbelievable patience. What I want is the words of Psalm 145 verse 8 to kind of ring in our ears. That psalm says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I mean, look at verse 5 here in in our text this morning. There's almost this kind of sarcastic tone to Yahweh's words. Look at what he says, starting in verse 4. He says, But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? When we're tempted to hastily press forward with our plans, we need to remember that God's promise to the Israelites in Exodus 6, verse 7. It's a great verse. It says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Yahweh's in close covenant relationship with his people. And in verses 6 and 7 of the narrative here that we're looking at this morning, it's this very covenant promise in Exodus 6 that drives God's words to David. Let's read verses 6 and 7. He says, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with the people of Israel, did I speak a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Notice the Lord does not say no to the plan of David. He doesn't just come out and say, no, end of story, great idea, thanks for that insight, but no. He he offers an explanation here. It's not a cold dismissal. The contrast of verbs is really striking in verse 6 when you look at it. He says, I have not lived in a house since I brought up the people of Israel out of Egypt. And that original word there in the Hebrew that's translated lived kind of implies this certain sedentary kind of quality. Kind of like, well, I have not lived, kind of this, I'm checked out, I'm, I'm sitting in the lazy boy. Let me know how that works out. And the thing we need to remember is we do not serve a sedentary God. We serve a proactive God, not a reactive God. It's not as if God is somehow checked out, and then when something happens, he, he gets up out of the lazy boy and says, oh, I better go take care of that. And then when it's all said and done, he sits back down. We serve a proactive God who is building his kingdom and is moving and working in human history for his glory. And that gives us great hope. That's a great promise. What if it was left up to us to make it all happen? We would make a royal mess of it. This is the amazing thing about this verse. God has no need for a house because he's been on the move with his people. God contrasts David's thoughts with the phrase, I have been moving. He says, I haven't been checked out to lunch. I've been moving with you. And this literally reads, I have been pacing back and forth. Kind of this activity. 
constant activity. I've always been on the move. So, well, why has God been on the move? Because his people have been on the move. They're his people and he's their God and he's called them. He said, I'm with you the whole time. I'm moving around with you. I mean, think about it. During 40 years in the wilderness, he was with them. During the crazy time of the judges, he was with them. We've been studying the book of Judges this fall in RUF at CNU. And the amazing thing about that, about that book, you just see over and over again, the key theme of the book is, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if that's not absolutely, completely relevant to where we are now, I don't know what is. In those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That whole book cries out for, when is this true king going to come? The book spirals into absolute chaos. There is no happy ending in Judges. It does not get tied off in a neat little bow and they ride off into the sunset. It ends with, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. End of story. Period. Close the book. And he says, even in the midst of that, even in the midst of that crazy time, God was with his people. During the missteps of the young kingdom of Israel, he was with them. And as we look at this, we ask, why should these verses stir our hearts towards God and make us hopeful? Why should we care what, what God is telling David here? Why should we care about this narrative in the Old Testament? This is the big so what question. We need to see that God will not settle down until his people are settled down in the promised land. Constantly active, constantly moving. God travels with his people amidst foolishness, sin, and weakness, but he also shares the hardships with them. That's the God that we love and serve. Verse 7, he reminds David that he's never asked anyone to build him a house. He said, I don't need a house. I'm with you. I want to be with you. I want to give you hope and give you a future. God is not ashamed to be seen traveling in a tent with his people. And we should be thankful for that. There's a great story taken from Dale Ralph Davis's commentary on 2 Samuel. And I was thinking about how could I illustrate this and... I was looking at Dale Ralph going, I can't do it any better than that. So here's full credit to Dale Ralph. Thank you, Dale Ralph Davis. Great story. It's a story of Sam Rayburn, who was a Speaker of the House in the 40s and 50s. He served 17 years as a Speaker of the House. Unbelievable. And he found out that the teenage daughter of a male reporter he knew had died. And the reporter heard a knock at the door one morning and, and woke up and went out and saw Rayburn standing on the front steps. It's a reporter with the Speaker of the House on the doorstep. The reporter was so shocked because Rayburn just asked, I heard, I heard there was a death. How can I help? How can I help you? The reporter was so shocked was left speechless and because they couldn't ask of anything. I mean, what would you ask the sitting Speaker of the House to do if he came and said, hey, can I help you do something? Is there anything I can do for you? Oh, yeah, sure. Why don't you rake my leaves? That'd be great. I mean, what would you say if the Speaker of the House were there on your doorstep? Rayburn kind of sized the situation up and kind of knew what was going on there and said, have you had your coffee this morning? Can I come in and just fix you a pot of coffee? I'd like to. Let's just start there. He said, no, I haven't. So he came on in and here is the Speaker of the House making, you know, Folgers in the middle of the living room. The reporter, the amazing thing about the story is that the reporter remembered that Rayburn kind of kept a standing weekly meeting on this morning of the week. I mean, this reporter was kind of intimately involved with the schedule. The speaker kind of kept up with him and knew that this day was special. 
And the reporter asked Rabin, um, Mr. Speaker, thanks for the coffee, by the way, it's delicious. Um, I thought you were supposed to eat breakfast at the White House this morning. Rayburn replied, well, I was, I was supposed to do that. But I called the president and told him I couldn't make it because a friend of mine was in trouble and needed help. The Speaker of the House going to this reporter, sorry, Mr. President, I can't have breakfast with you. I got a friend who had a death in the family and I need to go help out. Amazing story. And what we see here in this text is the almighty, holy, transcendent God of the universe intimately involved in the salvation of his chosen people despite their rebellion, sin, and complaining. Our covenant God stooping low to share in the hardships of his people. We later see this fully in Philippians 2 with Christ condescending and coming and saved, putting on skin and walking, and walking in our shoes to save us. John 1.14 gives us a great picture into this. It says, The Word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. The Greek there literally means He spread His tent. Set up shop there. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, as we look at this passage and we look and we start applying it, this is the Gospel. Almighty God moving towards broken people and setting up shop there in their midst because He loves them. Not because they were perfect, not because they had it all together, but because simply because He loved them. Intimately involved. He doesn't leave people wandering around in their own brokenness. Again, Dale Ralph Davis wrote, Does his people live in tents? So does he. Are they a pilgrim people on their way to the land of promise? So he is the pilgrim God sharing the rigors of the journey with them. We serve a living and active God who chooses to reside with broken people. But he doesn't leave them in their brokenness and wilderness wanderings. Again, he doesn't say, let me know how that works out. Call me when things get better. I'm over here. Here's a few things to kind of think about. He responds with unbelievable promise. He responds with patience in the midst of sin. But now in point two, we see he responds with unbelievable promise. Let's look at verses 8 and 9, kind of the first half of 9. Verse 8 reads, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones on the earth. What we see here is God reviewing the past relationship between him and David. It's almost like, do you remember what I've done for you? Think about the, think about the Israelites when they were in, during the Exodus account. We're out there in the middle of the wilderness and they're starting to complain and fuss. And God comes to them and says, do you not remember what I've done for you? You remember that whole ten plagues thing? Do you remember the miraculous crossing across the Red Sea when you walked across the dry ground and I closed up the water and killed the most mighty army on the planet? Do you remember that? Do you remember how I have been leading you with a pillar of fire and smoke and I have been causing it to rain miraculous bread all day long? What is wrong with you? I'm here the whole time. I've never left. Don't you remember? We see, we see God doing that with David. Look, notice the past verb tenses in these two verses, 8 and 9. He says, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. And I have been with you wherever you went, 
and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Yahweh reminds David that he chose David to be king over Israel. Yahweh reminds David that his presence has always been with him. And Yahweh reminds David that his power drove out Israel's enemies. He's saying, I have done it all for you. I have set you up and I love you and I've been doing this for you. Look how I've been working. The amazing thing about this passage, especially when we start thinking about it in our own lives, is the big point for David, King David here in the passage, and really the big point for us this morning too as we look at it is, it's not about you. It's not about you at all. It's about God. It's about His glory. God moving on the scene said, you're not that big of a deal. But I still love you. It's not about you. David wants to protect Yahweh, but is reminded quickly that the God of the universe can handle himself. The second half of verse 9 marks a shift in the text that you can see in your English translations. It basically moves from, here's what I have done, to here's what I will do. It's kind of a change in tense. It kind of emphasizes the future ongoing actions of God. And this final section of the passage outlines God's covenantal promises to David and Israel. Let's look again at this passage, verses 9 through 11. He says, And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down, I will raise up. You see the will I will do. Here's what I have done. Here's what I will do. We see in verse 9 that Yahweh promises to make David's name great. And in verse 10, God says that I will take this wandering, rootless people and plant them in a secure location. Look at what I'm about to do. Think about in the springtime when the weather starts warming up and we all get the urge to go to Ace or Home Depot or Lowe's and buy plants. And all of us mess up and buy them six weeks early. And so we put them in the ground because we're so excited to get the new plants in. And, you know, we're so tired of just seeing like mulch and pine straw. Let's put some green in the ground. And then we wait, we put them in, we jump the gun, and then the frost comes and kills them. (laughs) We've all done that. It's okay. But what we see here, think about when you've done that before. What happens if you pulled this this plant out out of the pot, you put it in the ground, and then you leave it alone, and then you decide a week later that you don't like it there and you want to move it? And then you stick it somewhere else, and you're like, nah, I don't really like it there either. I'm going to move it over here to the corner next to the mailbox. What would happen if you continually rip a plant out of the ground? It has no chance of survival. No chance. There's no chance for it to dig its roots in. Think about our own lives, and how often do we feel like our roots have been ripped open and laid bare? How often do we feel like we are a kind of a rootless, wandering people? We kind of feel like, Ugh, this happens and I feel like I'm getting ripped up and moved to a different part. Oh, this is happening. I mean, we have those moments. And we see throughout the history of Israel, God's people had been continually ripped from their location by oppression and warfare. And what Yahweh is doing here is promising an end to this nomadic life. He's promising rest and security, true rest and true security under his sovereignty. Israel's hope of rest is our hope of rest as well. I mean, that's why we love these covenantal promises in the Bible. 
Because they're not just for David, they're for us too. We are now heirs of all of the stuff that God is coming on the scene and saying, look at what I'm about to do. We'll look at this next week. We look at Revelation 21 with this picture of an absolutely impenetrable fortress where God's people can finally rest. We don't have to be ripped up and moved around. We can finally rest because we know the good king sits on the throne and he protects us forever. As we look at verse 11, remember how David wanted to build God a house in verse 2? Remember kind of the big great plan that he hatched? Yahweh counters this proposal in verse 11. Let's read that verse again. It says, From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Yahweh counters this initial proposal and says, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. I'm going to build you a kingdom. Here David is told that the house that he envisioned for Yahweh pales in comparison to the everlasting dynasty that God will build for him and his offspring. God is linking the permanent dwelling place of Israel with his own permanent dwelling place. He says, I have dwelt with you in a tent from the start. Now I will dwell with you forever. What an amazing promise. Think about what I did back at Greystone. I had spent all day preparing what I thought was going to be the best plan. I thought I had it all. I thought I was ready to rock. And people were, this is going to be great. When really all I needed to do was wait for the big truck to show up. My plan was terrible because it was done in haste. I mean, you can't imagine what was going through my mind when I was there and suddenly the big truck tops the hill and I look around and I'm like, look at my cones and the rope. This, is, this was a terrible idea. Who thought of that? <laughs> you know, I'm like wanting to hide. The result of all of my striving was that my pile of rope and orange cones looked silly next to the 30-foot slide. When that thing went up, it was like, who cares that there's a football toss? Something greater was already planned. And what we see here in verse 12 as we look at it is it shows the true nature of God's covenant with David. Verse 12 reads, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Again, there's this interesting contrast of verbs in this verse. It says, When David lays down, when he dies, when you lay down, God will raise up a son and establish his kingdom. The covenant's not really for David at all. It's for God's glory. Verse 13 continues to drive this home. It says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David wanted to build a house for God, but God declares that David's son Solomon is actually going to be the one chosen to build this house for Yahweh. Now, as we look at this and we think about this in our own lives, I think sometimes if we were kind of given that news, we don't like this message because we wanted to be the one taking credit for building the big house. I mean, that's what I wanted to do. Oh, look at what I have done with my magical, you know, water balloon toss and tug of war. This is the best one you've ever seen. And then the big truck shows up and I go, God, this really is terrible. I mean, that's why I was frustrated. I wanted the credit. I mean, it hurt at first because I'm selfish. But soon after the family started having fun and I saw these, these students that are wrestling with cancer, 
start having fun and just kind of throwing that off, I suddenly got the point. It's not about you. It's not about you at all. Biblical covenants are never about the people they're named after. They're always about the covenant-keeping God who always backs up His promises. It's not about the men who will break them. It's about the God who will keep them. Let's look at verse 15. He says, But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. That word, steadfast love, refers to God's everlasting covenant faithfulness. Always and forever, never stopping, unchanging, always around, from the beginning, covenant love. My steadfast love will never depart. It's a phrase found repeatedly in the Psalms, most notably in Psalm 136. It's a passage we're familiar with. It says, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Even in the midst of sin, God's love always remains with His chosen people simply because He's chosen to set His face on them. Even in the midst of sin and brokenness, God moves towards broken people. He doesn't move towards Israel and He doesn't move towards David because they had it all together. It's not because they were perfect. It's not because they could spout theology just right. It's not because that they had perfect families. Or they had everything squared away in their personal lives. It's not that at all. I mean, what if God's covenant faithfulness was solely contingent upon your personal holiness and obedience? What if it all hinged really on your own holiness? I got news for you. You would be in big trouble. What if it was all... What if... Folks with young kids... I got a three-year-old. What if it was up to you that if your kids acted up ever, you're suddenly out? That would be terrible. What if it was left up to you? I mean, think about this. How could our hearts not be so thankful for the grace and mercy that God shows us through Jesus? He says, it's not about you trying to make it all right. It's believing that I have made it right through Jesus for you. For free. What an amazing promise. What if God came on the scene and said, here's a hundred things you have to do absolutely right this week. And if you get them all right, next week when you come back, I'm going to give you another hundred. And that means you've got to keep the previous 100 plus this fresh set of 100 for the rest of your life. That's not good news at all. That's the worst news ever. The good news of the gospel is that God moves towards us in our brokenness. It's okay that you're not okay because God has made it right. The result of this covenant that we see here is that the royal line of David is established forever. The good king is on the way and he's going to come through the line of David and this good king is going to come and make it all right. As we conclude here, this unique mention of in verse 14 of God calling the Davidic king's sons should not be passed over. There's this huge redemptive hinge that pivots on this promise. O. Palmer Robertson wrote, The relation established between Son of David and Son of God at the inauguration of the Davidic covenant, that's what we're looking at, finds consummation at the coming of the Messiah. We see Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of these two sonships, Son of God, Son of David. And He is our covenant mediator on earth as the representative of God's people. And covenant mediator in heaven is the Son of God who sits on the throne. The good king who sits on the throne came down and walked among us and intercedes for us. This is unbelievable stuff. This is crazy talk. But it's the gospel and it gives us great hope. 
Christ is heir to all the riches of heaven and through His blood alone we're given the spirit of adoption and our co-heirs of the promises given to David's house. The promises given to David are your promises as well. And we say yes and amen. Thank you, Lord, that it's not up to me. God promised David that He would give the people of Israel rest in the land and establish His house among them. Now God is building His house in the hearts of His church and has promised them eternal rest in heaven through Jesus. That's what we're going to look at next week. God's building and moving. The kingdom is on the move. And when we're tempted to rely on our own plans and build a house for God by our own efforts, let's remember that God always keeps His covenants. Always and forever. We don't need to strive to build a house for God by our own efforts, fashioning it out of things that won't last. We need to trust in the promise that the big truck is on the way. We're all heirs of the covenant promise, but the glory is for God alone. King David thought that he needed to go out of his way to initiate the plan, when really all he needed to do was to be a passive recipient of God's covenant love towards him. The thing this David learned... Me, as I watch the truck pull onto the field, is that it's not about me. It's not about you at all. It's not about how great your games are or how you play, you know, you portray this. It's not about you at all. It was a hard lesson, but a right lesson and a true lesson. It's not about you at all. And that's the thing that King David learned here as well in this passage. David, it's not about you. It's about me. Look at what I'm about to do. The good king is on the way. And the good king is going to make it all right. Redemption, restoration for broken, needy, messy people. Redemption's on the way and the good king is coming. Let's rest and trust in that, that our good king loves us. And he's sovereign. And he can work in spite of our mess. Amen? Let's pray together.